Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. LeVar Burton Reads is supported by Audible. Audiobooks are great for helping you be a better you, whether you want to feel healthier, get motivated, or learn something new. And with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more, Audible has all of the audio content you need to start your year on the right foot. My recommendation for today is to check out An Unkindness of Ghosts by Rivers Solomon, which made all kinds of sci-fi and fantasy best lists of last year. It's about a stratified society aboard a spacecraft, and it is intensely thought-provoking. Whether it's on your phone, through your car, from a tablet, or at home on an Amazon Echo, you can get through tons of books while doing almost anything. And Audible even lets you switch seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where you left off. Start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash LeVar or text LeVar to 500-500. That's audible.com slash L-E-V-A-R or text LeVar to 500-500 for a 30-day trial and free first audiobook. You can do it. With audiobooks. Hey, y'all. I am taking this podcast on the road, and you're invited. Come on out to LeVar Burton Reads Live. I'll be taping live versions of the podcast in the following cities. Chicago on March 23rd. I'll be in Los Angeles on April 26th. San Francisco on April 29th. We'll swing by Portland, Oregon on May 4th. And finally, I'll stop in Seattle on May 6th. I'll be reading new favorite stories to you. And following the story, I'll sit down for an onstage conversation with the author. And we'll have the musical scoring performed live. Tickets go on sale this week. Get them while they're hot. Check out my Twitter, twitter.com slash LeVar Burton, where I'll be posting all of the details. I'll see you soon. But you don't have to take my word for it. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction and read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. And today... 
Have I got a story to share with you? It's by the British author and science fiction critic David Langford. And like so many other brainiac science fiction writers, David has had previous careers as, well, let's see, he ran his own software company. And at one time in his life, he was a weapons physicist. Wrap your head around that. For a second. The story is entitled Different Kinds of Darkness, and it was first published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in 2000, and it won him a Hugo Award for the best short story the following year. This is a story about, at its core, I believe, knowledge and what happens in the absence of knowledge, how humans really have an innate thirst to know and to understand. The children who are the protagonists in today's story are quite literally kept in the dark from their surroundings and their world. They're educated, they have and lead good lives, but there is something missing, and they must know what it is. This story also touches on those friendships that we make as children, the ones that are built on these shared experiences, and how those experiences go on to shape, in large measure, who it is that we become. So, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. And begin. Different Kinds of Darkness by David Langford. It was always dark outside the windows. Parents and teachers sometimes said vaguely that this was all because of deep green terrorists. But Jonathan thought there was more to the story. The other members of the Shutter Club agreed. The dark beyond the window glass at home, at school, and on the school bus was the second kind of darkness. You could often see a little bit in the first kind, the ordinary kind, and of course you could slice through it with a torch. The second sort of darkness was utter black, and not even the brightest electric torch showed a visible beam or lit anything up. Whenever Jonathan watched his friends walk out through the school door ahead of him, it was as though they stepped into a solid black wall. But when he followed them and felt blindly along the handrail to where the homeward bus would be waiting, there was nothing around him but empty air. Black air. Sometimes you found these super dark places indoors. Right now, Jonathan was edging his way down a black corridor, one of the school's no-go areas. Officially, he was supposed to be outside, mucking around for a break period in the high-walled playground where, oddly enough, it wasn't dark at all, and you could see the sky overhead. Of course, outdoors was no place for the dread secret initiations of the Shutter Club. Jonathan stepped out on the far side of the corridor's inky dark section and quietly opened the door of the little storeroom they'd found two terms ago. Inside, the air was warm, dusty, and stale. A bare light bulb hung from the ceiling. The others were already there, sitting on boxes of paper and stacks of battered textbooks. You're late, 
Horst Gary, Julie, and Khalid. The new candidate, Heather, just pushed back long blonde hair and smiled a slightly strained smile. Someone has to be last, said Jonathan. The words had become part of the ritual, like a secret password that proved that the last one to arrive wasn't an outsider or a spy. Of course, they all knew each other, but imagine a spy who was a master of disguise. Khalid solemnly held up an innocent-looking ring binder. That was his privilege. The club had been his idea after he'd found the bogey picture that someone had left behind in the school photocopier. Maybe he'd read too many stories about ordeals and secret initiations. When you'd stumbled on such a splendid ordeal, you simply had to invent a secret society to use it. We are the Shudder Club, Khalid intoned. We are the ones who can take it. Twenty seconds. Jonathan's eyebrows went up. Twenty seconds was serious. Gary, the fat boy of the gang, just nodded and concentrated on his watch. Khalid opened the binder and stared at the thing inside. One, two, three. He almost made it. It was past the 17-second mark when Khalid's hands started to twitch and shudder, and then his arms... He dropped the book, and Gary gave him a final count of 18. There was a pause while Khalid overcame the shakes and pulled himself together, and then they congratulated him on a new record. Julie and Gary weren't feeling so ambitious and opted for 10-second ordeals. They both got through, though by the count of 10, she was terribly white in the face, and he was sweating great drops. So Jonathan felt he had to say ten as well. You sure, John? said Gary. Last time you were on eight, no need to push it today. Jonathan quoted the ritual words, We are the ones who can take it, and took the ring binder from Gary. Ten. In between times, you always forgot exactly what the bogey picture looked like. It always seemed new. It was an abstract black-and-white pattern, swirly and flickery, like one of those old op-art designs. The shape was almost pretty until the whole thing got into your head with a shock of connection, like touching a high-voltage wire. It messed with your eyesight. It messed with your brain. Jonathan felt violent static behind his eyes, an electrical storm raging somewhere in there, instant fever singing through the blood, muscles locking and unlocking, and oh dear God, had Gary only counted to four? He held on, somehow, forcing himself to keep still when every part of him wanted to twitch in different directions. The dazzle of the bogey picture was fading behind a new kind of darkness, a shadow inside his eyes, and he knew with dreadful certainty that he was going to faint or be sick, or both. He gave in and shut his eyes just as unbelievably, and after what had seemed like years, the count reached ten. Jonathan felt too limp and drained to pay much attention as Heather came close, but not close enough, 
to the five seconds you needed to be a full member of the club. She blotted her eyes with a violently trembling hand. She was sure she'd make it next time. And then Khalid closed the meeting with a quotation he'd found somewhere. That which does not kill us makes us stronger. School was a place where mostly they taught you stuff that had nothing to do with the real world. Jonathan secretly reckoned that quadratic equations just didn't ever happen outside the classroom. So it came as a surprise to the club when things started getting interesting in, of all places, a maths class. Mr. Whitcutt was quite old, somewhere between grandfather and retirement age, and didn't mind straying away from the official maths course once in a while. You had to lure him with the right kind of question— Little Harry Steen, the chess and war games fanatic of the class, and under consideration for the club, scored a brilliant success by asking about a news item he'd heard at home. It was something to do with math war and terrorists using things called blitz. I actually knew Vernon Berryman, slightly, said Mr. Whitcutt, which didn't seem at all promising, but it got better. He's the B in Blit. You know, B-L-I-T. The Berryman Logical Imaging Technique, as he called it. Very advanced mathematics. Over your heads, probably. Back in the first half of the 20th century, two great mathematicians called Goodell and Turing proved theorems which, um, well, uh, one way of looking at it is that mathematics is booby-trapped. For any computer at all, there are certain problems that will crash it and stop it dead. Half the class nodded knowingly. Their homemade computer programs so often did exactly that. Berryman was another brilliant man and an incredible idiot. Right at the end of the 20th century, he said to himself, What if there are problems that crash the human brain? And he went out and found one and came up with his wretched imaging technique that makes it a problem you can't ignore. Just looking at a blit pattern, letting it in through your optic nerves, can stop your brain. A click of old knotty fingers. Like that. Jonathan and the club looked sidelong at each other. They knew something about staring at strange images. It was Harry delighted to have stolen all this time from boring old Trigg, who stuck his hand up first. Uh, did this Berryman look at his own pattern, then? Mr. Whitcutt gave a gloomy nod. The story is that he did, by accident, and it killed him, stone dead. It's ironic. For centuries, people had been writing ghost stories about things so awful that just looking at them makes you die of fright. And then a mathematician working in the purest and most abstract of all the sciences goes and brings the stories to life. He grumbled on about blit terrorists like the Deep Greens, who didn't need guns and explosives, just a photocopier or a stencil that let them spray deadly graffiti on walls. According to Whitcutt, TV broadcasts used to go out live, not taped, until the notorious activist T-Zero broke into a BBC studio 
and showed the cameras a blit known as the parrot. Millions had died. It wasn't safe to look at anything these days. Jonathan had to ask, So, um, the special kind of dark outdoors is to stop people seeing stuff like that? Well, yes, in effect, that's quite right. The old teacher rubbed his chin for a moment. They briefed you about all that when you're a little older. It's a bit of a complicated issue. Uh, another question. It was Khalid who had his hand up. With an elaborate lack of interest that struck Jonathan as desperately unconvincing, he said, Are all these blit things uh, really dangerous, or are there ones that just jolt you a bit? Mr. Whitcutt looked at him hard for very nearly the length of a beginner's ordeal. Then he turned to the whiteboard with its scrawled triangles. Quite. As I was saying, the cosine of an angle is defined... The four members of the inner circle had drifted casually together in their special corner of the outdoor play area by the dirty climbing frame that no one ever used. So, we're terrorists, said Julie cheerfully. We should give ourselves up to the police. No, our picture's different, Gary said. It doesn't kill people, it... A chorus of four voices makes us stronger. Jonathan said... What did Deep Greens terrorize about? I mean, what don't they like? I think it's biochips, Khalid said uncertainly. Tiny computers for building into people's heads. They say it's unnatural or something. There was a bit about it in one of those old issues of New Scientist in the lab. Be good for exams, Jonathan suggested. But you can't take calculators into the exam room. Everyone with a biochip, please leave your head at the door. They all laughed. But Jonathan felt a tiny shiver of uncertainty, as though he'd stepped on a stair that wasn't there. Biochip sounded very like something he'd overheard in one of his parents' rare shouting matches. And he was pretty sure he'd heard unnatural, too. Please don't let Mom and Dad be tangled up with terrorists, he thought suddenly. But it was too silly. They weren't like that. There was something about control systems, too, Khalid said. You wouldn't want to be controlled now. As usual, the chatter soon went off in a new direction, or rather an old one. The walls of Type 2 darkness that the school used to mark off-limits areas, like the corridor leading to the old storeroom. The club were curious about how it worked and had done some experiments. Some of the things they knew about the dark and had written down were Khalid's visibility theory, which had been proved by painful experiment. Dark zones were brilliant hiding places when it came to hiding from other kids, but teachers could spot you even through the blackness and tick you off something rotten for being where you shouldn't be. Probably they had some kind of special detector, but no one had ever seen one. Jonathan's bus footnote to Khalid's discovery was simply that the driver of the school bus certainly looked as if he was seeing something through the black windscreen. Of course, this was Gary's idea. 
The bus might be computer-guided, with the steering wheel turning all by itself and the driver just pretending. But why should he bother? Julie's mirror was the weirdest thing of all. Even Julie hadn't believed it could work. But if you stood outside a Type 2 dark place and held a mirror just inside so it looked as though your arm was cut off by the black wall, you could shine a torch at the place where you couldn't see the mirror and the beam would come bouncing back out of the blackness to make a bright spot on your clothes or the wall. As Jonathan pointed out, this was how you could have bright patches of sunlight on the floor of a classroom whose windows all looked out into protecting darkness. It was a kind of dark that light could travel through, but eyesight couldn't. None of the optics textbooks said a word about it. By now, Harry had had his club invitation and was counting the minutes to his first meeting on Thursday, two days away. Perhaps he would have some ideas for new experiments when he'd passed his ordeal and joined the club. Harry was extra good at maths and physics. Which makes it sort of interesting, Gary said. If our picture works by maths, like those blip things, will Harry be able to take it for longer because his brain's built that way? Or will it be harder because it's coming on his own wavelength sort of thing? The Shutter Club reckoned that although, of course, you shouldn't do experiments on people, this was a neat idea that you could argue either side of. And they did. LeVar Burton Reads is supported by... Audible. Audiobooks are great for helping you be a better you. Whether you want to feel healthier, get motivated, or learn something new. And with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more, Audible has all the audio content you need to start your year on the right foot. And I will suggest checking out An Unkindness of Ghosts, written by River Solomon and narrated by Sharice Booth. Incredibly relevant and incredibly real. Whether it's on your phone, through your car, from a tablet, or at home on an Amazon Echo, you can get through tons of books while doing almost anything. And Audible even lets you switch seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where you left off. Start a 30-day trial, and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash LeVar. Or text LeVar to 500-500. That's audible.com slash LeVar. Or text L-E-V-A-R to 500-500 for a 30-day trial and free first audiobook. You can do it with audiobooks. Ever plan a vacation? Finding a place to stay that'll make everyone happy for the right price where you all want to visit? Well... That can feel like a full-time job. Trust me, I know. I've traveled with my family. Spend less time planning your next trip with Tripping.com. Don't visit a ton of different sites. On Tripping.com, one search lets you compare every home from the world's top vacation rental sites in one place to find the best deal on your perfect vacation rental. Vacation rentals offer more. More. Privacy, more space for everyone under one roof, and 
more choices with fully stocked kitchens, extra bedrooms, and even hot tubs. All the comforts of home and then some. Best of all, at Tripping.com, you can join the millions of travelers who find more savings with rates of up to 80% less than traditional hotel rooms. So, if you're planning a spring break on the beach in Florida, Tripping.com. Can't wait to swim in Lake Tahoe this summer? Tripping.com. Dreaming of sitting on the deck of a Smoky Mountains cabin? Tripping.com. This year, save time and money when you book the vacation home of your dreams with Tripping.com slash LeVar. That's T-R-I-P-P-I-N-G dot com slash LeVar. Find your perfect vacation rental, Tripping.com slash LeVar. Now, let's get back to our story. Thursday came, and after an eternity of history and double physics, there was a free period that you were supposed to spend reading or in computer studies. Nobody knew it would be the Shudderer's last initiation. Although Julie, who read heaps of fantasy novels, insisted later that she'd felt all doom-laden and could sense a powerful reek of wrongness. Julie tended to say things like that. The session in the musty storeroom began pretty well, with Khalid reaching his 20 seconds at last, Jonathan sailing beyond the count of 10, which only a few weeks ago had felt like an impossible Everest, and, to carefully muted clapping, Heather finally becoming a full member of the club. Then the trouble began. As Harry, the first-timer, adjusted his little round glasses, set his shoulders, opened the tatty ritual ring binder, and went rigid. Not twitchy or shuddery, but stiff. He made horrible grunts and pig squeals and fell sideways. Blood trickled from his mouth. He's bitten his tongue, said Heather. Oh, Lord, uh, what's first aid for biting your tongue? At this point, the storeroom door opened and Mr. Whitcutt came in. He looked older and sadder. I might have known it would be like this. Suddenly, he turned his eyes sideways and shaded them with one hand as though blinded by strong light. Cover it up! Shut your eyes, Patel! Don't look at it and just cover that damned thing up! Khalid did as he was told. They helped Harry to his feet. He kept saying, Sorry, sorry, in a thick voice and dribbling like a vampire with awful table manners. The long march through the uncarpeted echoey corridors to the school's little sick room and then onward to the principal's office seemed to go on for endless grim hours. Miss Fortmain, the principal, was an iron-gray woman who, according to school rumors, was kind to animals but could reduce any pupil to ashes with a few sharp sentences, a kind of human blit. She looked across her desk at the Shutter Club for one eternity of a moment and said sharply, Whose idea was it? Khalid slowly put up a brown hand, but no higher than his shoulder, Jonathan remembered the Three Musketeers' motto, one for all and all for one, and said, It was all of us, really. So Julie added, That's right. 
I really don't know, said the principal, tapping the closed ring binder that lay in front of her. The single most insidious weapon on earth, the information war equivalent of a neutron bomb, and you were playing with it. I don't often say that words fail me. Someone left it in the photocopier, here, downstairs, Khalid pointed out. Yes, mistakes do happen. Her face softened a little. And I'm getting carried away. Because we do actually use that blit image as part of a little talk I have with older children when they're about to leave school. They're exposed to it for just two seconds with proper medical supervision. Its nickname is the Trembler, and some countries use big posters of it for riot control, but not Britain or America, naturally. Of course, you couldn't have known that Harry Steen is a borderline epileptic or that the Trembler would give him a fit. I should have guessed sooner, said Mr. Whitcutt's voice from behind the club. Young Patel blew the gaff by asking what was either a very intelligent question or a very incriminating one. But I'm an old fool who never got used to the idea of a school being a terrorist target. The principal gave him a sharp look. Jonathan felt dizzy with thoughts clicking through his head like one of those workings in algebra where everything goes just right and you can almost see the answer waiting in the white space at the bottom of the page. What don't deep green terrorists like? Why are we a target? Control systems. You wouldn't want to be controlled. He blurted, biochips. We've got biochip control systems in our heads. All us kids. They make the darkness somehow. The special dark where grown-ups can still see. There was a moment's frozen silence. Go to the top of the class, murmured old Whitcutt. The principal sighed and seemed to sag in her chair a little. There had to be a first time, she said quietly. This is what my little lecture to school leavers is all about. How you're specially privileged, children. How you've been protected all your lives by biochips in your optic nerves that edit what you can see. So it always seems dark in the streets and outside the windows, wherever there might be a blit image waiting to kill you. But that kind of darkness isn't real, except to you. Remember, your parents had a choice, and they agreed to this protection. Mine didn't both agree, thought Jonathan, remembering an overheard quarrel. It's not fair, said Gary uncertainly. It's doing experiments on people. Khalid said, and it's not just protection. There are corridors here indoors that are blacked out just to keep us out of places, to control us. Miss Fortmain chose not to hear them. Maybe she had a biochip of her own that stopped rebellious remarks from getting through. When you leave school, you are given full control over your biochips. You can choose whether to take risks once you're old enough. Jonathan could almost bet that all five club members were thinking the same thing. What the hell? We took our risks with the trembler and we got away with it. Apparently, they had indeed got away with it. 
since when the principal said, you can go now, she'd still mention nothing about punishment. As slowly as they dared, the club headed back to the classroom. Whenever they passed side turnings, which were filled with solid darkness, Jonathan cringed to think that a chip behind his eyes was stealing the light and with different programming could make him blind to everything, everywhere. The seriously nasty thing happened at going home time when the caretaker unlocked the school's side door as usual while a crowd of pupils jostled behind him. Jonathan and the club had pushed their way almost to the front of the mob. The heavy wooden door swung inward. As usual, it opened on the second kind of darkness, but something bad from the dark came in with it. A large sheet of paper fixed with a drawing pin to the door's outer surface and hanging slightly askew. The caretaker glanced at it and toppled like a man struck by lightning. Jonathan didn't stop to think. He shoved past some smaller kid and grabbed the paper, crumpling it up frantically. It was already too late. He'd seen the image there, completely unlike the trembler, yet very clearly from the same terrible family. A slanted, dark shape like the profile of a perched bird, but with complications, twirly bits, patterns like fractals, and it hung there, blazing in his mind's eye, and wouldn't go away. Something hard and horrible, smashing like a runaway express into his brain. Burning, falling, burning, falling. After long and evil dreams of bird shapes that stalked him in darkness, Jonathan found himself lying on a couch, no, a bed, in the school sickroom. It was a surprise to be anywhere at all, after feeling his whole life crashing into that enormous full stop. He was still limp all over, too tired to do more than stare at the white ceiling. Mr. Whitcutt's face came slowly into his field of vision. Hello? Hello? Anyone in there? He sounded worried. Yes, uh, I'm fine, said Jonathan, not quite truthfully. Thank heaven for that. Nurse Baker was amazed you were alive. Alive and sane seemed like too much to hope for. Well, I'm here to warn you that you're a hero. Plucky boy saves fellow pupils. You'll be surprised how quickly you can get sick of being called plucky. What was it on the door? One of the very bad ones, called the parrot, for some reason. Poor old George the caretaker was dead before he hit the ground. The anti-terrorist squad that came to dispose of that blit paper couldn't believe you'd survived. Neither could I. Jonathan smiled. I've had practice. Yes, it didn't take that long to realize Lucy, uh, that is, Miss Fortmain, failed to ask you young hooligans enough questions. 
So, I had another word with your friend Khalid Patel. God in heaven, that boy can outstare the trembler for twenty seconds. Adult crowds fall over in convulsions once they've properly, what do you call it, registered the sight of the thing. Let it lock in. My record's ten and a half, nearly eleven, really. The old man shook his head wonderingly. I wish I could say I didn't believe you. They'll be reassessing the whole biochip protection program. No one ever thought of training young, flexible minds to resist blit attack by a sort of vaccination process. If they'd thought of it, they still wouldn't have dared try it. Anyway, Lucy and I had a talk, and we have a little present for you. They can reprogram those biochips by radio link in no time at all. And so, he pointed. Jonathan made an effort and turned his head. Through the window, where he'd expected to see only artificial darkness, there was a complication of rosy light and glory that at first his eyes couldn't take in. A little at a time, assembling itself like some kind of healing, opposite to those deadly patterns, the abstract brilliance of heaven became a town roofscape glowing in a rose-red sunset. Even the chimney pots and satellite dishes looked beautiful. He'd seen sunsets on video, of course, but it wasn't the same. It was the aching difference between live flame and an electric fire's dull glare. Like so much of the adult world, the TV screen lied by what it didn't tell you. The other present is from your pals. They said they were sorry. There wasn't time to get anything better. It was a small, somewhat bent bar of chocolate. Gary always had a few tucked away, with a card written in Julie's careful left-sloping script and signed by all the Shutter Club. The inscription was, of course, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. Have you ever had one of those dreams where you knew you were dreaming and you couldn't wake up? Or you were awake, but you couldn't move. That's what this story reminds me of. Waking up out of a nightmare into another nightmare where everything you thought you knew is not true. And the new reality is still really scary, right? That's what this story brings up for me is that that place of being just behind the curve of reality, of, of knowing what's really going on. And then when the fog lifts, you realize what deep shit you're, you're in, you know? Um, anyway, I just, I, 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 I love the world that he's created here. It, it also reminded me of, you know, shows like The, the, the Little Rascals or when I was a kid, just, just your, your group of best friends, facing whatever, getting into trouble and out of trouble together. 
it just it it was really reminiscent of you know of the best part of childhood just being kids you know it, if you think about it it's a classic coming of age story because you know the, these kids are literally being kept in the dark i mean literally being kept in the dark and it is through their own devices that they find their way to the light and and in a way that is bold and innovative um, and and surprises even the adults in in their lives as being something completely revolutionary um, and disruptive in terms of the way things are normally done. Um, I think Joseph Campbell is smiling, you know, somewhere because the, it, it really it really is it's it's the hero's journey, going out into the world, being your authentic self, and 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 bringing back knowledge, information, wisdom um, to the rest of the tribe that uh, that changes the way uh, we are and the way we we operate in the world. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Smith, and our assistant producer is Audrey No. Editing and sound design by the very talented Adam Dybert. Thank you, as always, to the shadowy, elliptical Matt Gorley. And we are very grateful to our friends at Little Everywhere for their help in producing this episode. My special thanks today to Mr. David Langford for allowing me to read his story. You can find it in his collection entitled Different Kinds of Darkness. You can find a link to it on his website, ansible.co.uk. That's A-N-S-I-B-L-E dot C-O dot U-K. Thank you, David. And if you want to come check out a live version of this podcast, I hope to see you in Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, or Seattle this spring. Go to twitter.com slash LeVar Burton, where I'll post all of the details for LeVar Burton Reads live. And hey, if you love the show and want to help other people find it, it's easy to do. Just leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And in your review, tell us what story you would like to hear on the podcast. We'll be back next week with another handpicked story. Or if you can't wait that long, listen to the next episode right now on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar. Or if you're listening in Stitcher, just tap the menu button in your app and select premium for one month free. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radelette. I'm LeVar Burton, and you can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Hey, it's Dan Pashman from the Sporkful Podcast, and we've got a new podcast called Ask Mimi. It's an advice show starring legendary food critic Mimi Sheridan. She's 92, and she doesn't give an F. I think you have a problem. It's too bad you didn't know it before you married him. (laughs) I'll moderate as Mimi gives advice to members of our live audience and to live callers from across the country. Do their lack of food appetite indicate a lack of sex appetite? (laughs) 
Plus, we welcome celebrity guests who need Mimi's guidance. People like comedians Mo Rocca, Sashir Zameda, Aparna Nancherla, and Nagin Farsad. I feel like I'm going to expose my soul at you, you know, tell you the dimensions of my vagina. You know what I mean? It's kind of like that. There is a guy down the hall who's super friendly, but I think he's a total pothead. And nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Yeah. We all know that. Right. <laughs> Listen to Ask Mimi today in Stitcher Premium. Or hear the first episode for free. It's up now in the Sporkful feed. Subscribe to the Sporkful in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call. Text or chat 988 for free confidential support anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.